I'm looking out across the San Francisco skyline, a vast mosaic of concrete and steel that coalesce into infinity. Beyond it, the bay glows amber beneath the setting sun, tranquil and unperturbed by the roar of the city. I watch it all unfold from the couch in my hotel room. The city gently fades from gray to black, the bay from amber to cobalt, and as another day casually becomes another night, something about it takes my breath. My computer sits on my lap, a cursor blinking on a blank page, but the words don't come. This is a feeling, an emotion, visceral and indescribable, and for a little while I close my eyes and let it carry me away. It's been nearly two years since Even If You Don't first came into the world, and even still I'm humbly overwhelmed by how the story has resonated in the hearts of so many. I accept precisely no credit. That belongs wholly to God and to you, my readers. Not a day passes that I don't pray for the book, not for its commercial success, but for for its success in helping mend broken spirits and comfort broken hearts. Using my pain to help others with their pain is perhaps the highest calling with which I have ever been entrusted, and to heed that calling will forever be an honor and a privilege. But strangely, the emotion I feel looking out at the Northern California sky has little to do with even if you don't. I'm not thinking of the successes, not all the incredibly kind reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, not all the inspiring messages I receive every week on social media, not even all the amazing people I've met at book signings and speaking events. I'm not thinking about any of these things because I'm not thinking about what even if you don't did. I'm thinking about what it didn't do. Most of you probably know that even if you don't was a love story. It told the harrowing tale of a young couple, myself and my wife, Kaylin, whose youthful affections were forged into something far more profound and far more enduring by a stage four breast cancer diagnosis at age 22. A fairy tale and a tragedy melted into one mesmeric draught, and most of you probably know how the story ended. Oddly enough, that's what I'm thinking about. The end, and how those words are fraudulent, a deception, a lie. When you turn the final page of Even If You Don't, it might have said the end, but it wasn't. In fact, in a somewhat preternatural sense, it was the beginning of multitudes, some scintillatingly beautiful and some unspeakably ugly. One battle had ended, but another had just begun. The bulk of the war was yet to be waged. The end? No, not even close. And that is what takes my breath. The fact that so many people, many of whom may well be walking the city streets below me, think their story is over. They believe that tragedy ended their fairy tale. They believe they no longer belong that their lives are purposeless, meaningless, that they are no longer loved or wanted. They believe they're a mutation and aberrance, that they are strangers in a strange place. They believe they are anachronisms, soulless vestiges of a life already lived. Their grief has swallowed them whole, plunged them into an abyssal pool of guilt and shame. And And as they thrash against the weight of loss using all the strength they have left, struggling to find breath, Our misinformed culture calmly holds them under the waves until their futile gesticulations cease and they surrender to their fate. That is why I wrote The Lazarus Within. Because the end isn't the end. You are not bad just because something happened to you. And your story isn't nearly over. Our cultural grief narrative is grotesquely broken. In The Lazarus Within, we begin to rewrite it. Many people have asked me if The Lazarus Within is a sequel to Even If You Don't. The answer is a complicated one. But please allow me to explain it as simply as I know how. The Lazarus Within opens with a simile. My wife's death was like the detonation of a grenade atop a snow-covered peak. Even if you don't told the story of the grenade, The Lazarus Within tells the story of the avalanche. (laughs) 
Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Choose to Think podcast. I'm Victoria Walker, and I'm so glad that you're here. The voice you just heard in the prologue to this episode was that of Brian with a Y, C. Taylor, as he read an excerpt from his blog post called Avalanche. Brian is a number one best-selling author on Amazon in the love and loss category with his book called Even If You Don't, and he has recently published his second book called The Lazarus Within. I think I could say that this interview kept me as an interviewer absolutely engaged and intrigued. I was so blessed by the profoundly wise words this young man had to share. And listen, if you know anyone who is grieving, please consider sharing this podcast episode link so that they too may feel the waves of encouragement and hope that are left in the wake of this interview. Now let's dive right in. The book, even if you don't, in some regards, actually is an introduction to Kaylin. It's a, it's a love story, and that's in the actually in the title. Even if you don't, a love story, um, because I wanted it to be, you know, my my wife Kaylin. She we we got married when we were twenty and twenty one, respectively. Um, very young, you know, we we're both still in school, and um, it was very much a fairy tale type romance. We met in church, and we we just had a very uh, it was a very sure thing right from the beginning. We moved very quickly. We got married uh, a year to the day, essentially, from when we started dating. Um, and so very, very quick is sort of thing when you know, you know. Um, and I firmly always believe in dating intentionally, and we certainly did do that. Um, and so, you know, the tagline for the second book is life can be a fairy tale, even when it's a tragedy. And of course, the tragedy component was at age 22, Kaylin was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, um, mostly out of the blue. You know, I think something like that pretty much always blindsides you. Um, she did have a myriad of health challenges that she had faced pretty much for the totality of her life. Um, she had um, an illness called, well, Crohn's disease was probably the primary thing she struggled with. She also had a blood clotting disorder, uh, which posed a, you know, potentially life-threatening risk at times. Um, and so she had dealt with her, her fair share of, of hardship long before cancer. Uh, but of course, cancer up the ante significantly, especially late stage cancer. Um, by the time we found the lump in her breast, it had already metastasized to her bones, um, which for those who are medical in the audience, you know that that is um, outside of divine intervention commensurate with um, a death sentence at some point in time. It, it, we, we knew at that point that um, we would not grow old together in the fairy tale sense that we thought we would. Um, we weren't sure how long, and we, of course, prayed for a miracle and believed very much that God could deliver that. He didn't ultimately deliver a miracle in the sense that we anticipated um, but or that we asked for, but he certainly did deliver miracles abundant all along the way. Um, and that's what Even If You Don't is about. It's about the miracle of Kaylin's life, um, and it's about the miracle of what she taught me and what she can teach anyone who reads the book or, or who knew her in person. Um, it's, it's really, you know, I opened the text with a quote from, from one of her blogs uh, where she says, um, even if God doesn't choose to heal me, which of course is where I got the, the title for the book, which actually came out before the mercy me song. Um, but that, I thought that was kind of neat that there was that overlay, uh, from scripture there. Uh, but she, she said, even if God doesn't heal, uh, heal me, I'm going to choose to believe and ask and expect miracles. Um, and so that was sort of the way she lived her life. Um, and that's the way she taught me to live mine. Um, and so that's that's how I finished the book as well. On the final page, I say, I'm going to, you know, 
in this journey of grief that I'm just beginning, um, because at that time it was right after her passing, um, I said, I'm going to take Caitlin's advice. I'm going to choose to believe and ask and expect miracles. Um, and those come in, in forms that we don't always ask for, and, and sometimes they come completely unbidden. Um, but most of the time, I would argue, they, they are there. We just simply don't recognize them. Um, and so Caitlin was really, really good at always recognizing them. Um, she, she had this fervor for life that was really, at least in my experience, unmatched. Very, very difficult circumstances, just immensely challenging um, physical circumstances did nothing to dampen her spirit. You know, she, to me, she exemplified the, the C.S. Lewis quote, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. Um, and so she had a soul, you know, and her, her body, the outer shell, this carbon vessel that she was in um, was, was deeply flawed and caused her an immense amount of pain in this life. Um, but her spirit was never dampened by it. And I think that that is what ultimately, so even if you don't, was about that harrowing tale of her life and our love story, which ultimately concluded with her passing uh, at age 25 in 2015. Um, and so a few years after, even if you don't came out, actually this past spring in March, uh, I published The Lazarus Within, which sort of, as I mentioned in the, the sort of the prologue to today's episode, um, was the avalanche portion of the explosion. So if the first book was the grenade blowing up on top of the snow-covered mountain, uh, the second book was what came next, which was an avalanche would be an apt uh, descriptor, I believe. I want to go back just a teeny bit to her remarkable spirit and her attitude and her mindset. Where did she get that? Well, there is no question that it was born directly out of her faith in Jesus Christ. You know, there she she would be the first to admit and the first to proclaim that none of it really came from her. You know, she she certainly had a a disposition that was magnetic. You know, people people wanted more of her. You know, whenever you were around her, she just she just drew you in. You know, she had an exuberance about her that came from above and it, it manifested in her really sweet personality and her just unbelievable resilience and immutable hope, the way she approached life, the joy that was just, you know, she could not be kept down. Um, but that, of course, came from uh, her, her faith in Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit within her. Um, and she would she would be very upset with me if I didn't make that clear from the onset here, um, that it was it was really all about um, about Christ and about the Holy Spirit from the beginning. Um, she, you know, gets a, a lot of credit for her resilience and should, but she always pointed that credit elsewhere, you know, and so that's, she pointed it above, um, which is certainly where that came from. Um, she, she had that, like I said, from very early in her life, her, her illness, her, her battle with illness began actually on the day she was born. She had a lung collapse, uh, pneumothorax on the day she was born. Um, and I've, I've always thought of it as, you know, as soon as Kaylin Combs Taylor was conceived, Satan knew he had a formidable opponent. Um, and so he began attacking her right from the beginning. Um, and she, he never, he never defeated her uh, because of course he can't defeat the presence of Christ. Um, and so she certainly exuded that in everything she did. What did that look like for her in a practical way? Like the day to day of it all, I understand that she depended on her faith and on Jesus, and she had that strength within and that was given, that wonderful gift that was given to her. And 
you know, her belief system, maybe the way she was raised, everything kind of coming together to help her have that type of exuberance despite all of this hardship and trial and suffering. But on the day-to-day basis for her, what did that look like? In other words, how did she deepen her faith during that time? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, um, and it's one that doesn't get asked very often. And so I'm really glad that you did ask it. I would say just at the at the beginning of of my answer that she was very much human. You know, she she got really frustrated. You know, she got down. She thought negative thoughts at times. She she said things maybe she shouldn't have said about her circumstances or things that wouldn't be quote unquote christ-like at times you know always in private but she said them nonetheless because she's human and so anybody else that's going through a situation like this if you're listening to this my goodness it's okay to feel human you know and to say and do things and not always act exuberant you know or joyful or hopeful as long as you remain hopeful you don't always have to act that way it's okay to be to feel what you feel and be you know a human being to feel human emotions um, and she certainly did that. I, I experienced that on many occasions, um, probably fewer occasions than, than I would have shown human emotion. Um, but but she did. And that I think that's important to note is that, you know, she, we can we have this tendency to kind of aggrandize people after they after they pass away. Um, and so that's we kind of romanticize the, the past in a way. And I, I don't I think that's that's good in a sense, but it's also bad because it it's sort of demonizes everybody else's process. You know, if you're still alive and dealing with pain, you're not quite deified in the same way as someone who has passed. And so I just think it's important to be honest about that. I mean, I can talk more about why I think that's so important later. But as far as her daily walk, she was extremely diligent about never letting strongholds form, like in her mind or in her thoughts and her spirit. She was very clear about the fact that so if someone said you're a cancer or the cancer, you know, making it seem like it was something that she possessed, she always said, no, it is not my cancer. It is the cancer. You know, it is it is something from the enemy and I don't belong to the enemy. I belong to Christ, you know, and my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit It is might be being defiled by this cancer, but this cancer cannot defeat the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so she was very adamant in the words that she spoke and the thoughts that she thought um, and she rebuffed me on several occasions where I may or may or may not have, you know, just kind of unintentionally said something that um, kind of attributed that sort of stronghold type thing. Um, but on a on a more, I guess, perfunctory, you know, daily basis, she she certainly spent a lot of time in scripture. Uh, she spent a lot of time being quiet, um, which I think is something that is a lost art in today's culture. Uh, she didn't spend a lot of her time on, you know, on social media talking about what she was going through. She did, she did blog consistently. And I think that was an outlet for her, but she never really did it because she wanted attention or she wanted people to know how bad she had it. She did it in the hopes that, that it would help someone else going through something similar, which of course there are those people and there are to this day. And, that's a lot of the reason why I've written the things that I've written as well. Um, she spent a lot of time in scripture, as I said, quiet time. She she went for walks with our dogs. She did the things that rejuvenated her spirit. Um, and, you know, family time was was a huge thing for her. We spent a lot of time with her family in those days. Um, and so, you know, really, she, she was very, the word that continues coming to mind in answering this question, she lived her life intentionally. 
you know, she lived life on purpose. There were very rarely did she do something completely by accident. You know, her, not only her spiritual journey, but her daily journey and how she processed things, how she went about her uh, dealing with hardship and also dealing with triumph. You know, when cancer went into remission or, or when it came back a few months later, you know, the way she processed these things was scripture-based first and foremost, but it was also systematic. She had a plan of attack um, and she approached every day intentionally, um, including her prayer life and her, her time in the word. What was the kindest thing that she ever did or said to you, Brian? You know, that I'd have to think about that for a second, but I think, you know, the, the things that are most resonant to me um, are the things that came, I think it's just human nature, are the things that came near the end, um, the things that happened in the hospital room or walking through the halls with her toward the end. Um, and there was one day where she shared something with me that she didn't have to, you know, and it was probably hard for her to say, um, but she talked about, she had been in this um, sort of stupor the last few days prior to, she, it was called a pseudo coma. It wasn't a coma necessarily, but there was, there was a malignancy that had metastasized to her brain and it was impacting her level of consciousness to some degree. Um, and so she had spent several days in sort of this, she wasn't asleep, but sort of in this dazed state. And she came out of it almost miraculously several times. And one of those times she and I were walking down the hall together, Ivy pole bouncing along behind us. And she just told me about in one of those dazed phases she was in, she, she talked about the veil. And at first I wasn't totally sure what she meant by the veil, but she said, you know, I, um, I saw it, you know, I saw the, the veil and, she, and I, and I, so I continued trying, she was still a little bit, she was on a lot of medication. So she was a little bit, not loopy, but, but not as responsive and normal in conversation as she was normally. Um, and she went on to explain to me that it, it was the veil between this, this life and the next, you know, she was, she essentially felt the call to go home during that, that pseudo coma, you know, heaven was just beyond the veil. And she said, as I walked toward it, and this is, I think I tell this story in the book, but as she walked toward it, she said, all of these ailments and things that I feel all the time, like I don't even notice them anymore because I feel them so consistently. I noticed that they were gone. Like I started to feel normal, healthy, happy, full, you know, just it, it, supernaturally. So, you know, and as she's telling me this story, I'm thinking, you know, she, she almost, you know, went to heaven. That was almost it. And of course that, at, by that point, it almost made me excited for her because the torment that she had endured was just so vast that, you know, that she deserved to go home. Um, but what she told me next is what really got me. And that's that. But she said, then I turned around and I saw you, you know, I saw you still standing there and you could not come. You could not come with me. So she said, I turned around and walked back, you know, and I, it, it's difficult to put into words um, what something like that means, you know, um, and she did that two or three different times. You know, she would emerge from these coma type states where the doctors would tell us, hey, more than likely she will not come out of this, but she did. And so I know that she walked back from the veil for me at least three times. Um, and so I would say that that has to be among the kindest things she ever did for me. And that's just beautiful. Do you remember the last thing that she said to you? Yes, I do. So she, um, this was, this was at a time, as I said, where she was, you know, her, her, her brain was impacted by the disease. 
and she was on a high, you know, high dosages of medications. Um, but her last words, to my knowledge, in in, in this world, were "Go get it." Um, and she she was laying in the bed, and she was kind of contorted. This was maybe two to three hours before her passing. So very, very time was getting very short. And I think we all knew it by that point. And she, all of a sudden she was kind of laying there again, sort of in that, that dazed sort of state. And she rolled over and looked at the door and said, said those words, go, go get it. And so I, I've written those words on a note, like a, a little post-it note and I keep it in my, my home office. And I, I, I may not ever know exactly what she meant by that, at least in this life, but I try to approach every day with a go get it attitude, you know, like, and I try to remember her saying that um, as, a, as a means of, you know, getting up early and writing in the morning or, or doing my best at work or, or loving my family well or whatever it is. I try to approach it with that, that same intentional go get it attitude that she lived her life with. And maybe that was her final way of telling me it's okay to to go get it, to continue living after she, after she was gone. I love that. Your blog post, the three year mark had like 16,000 views or reads on that. Yes. And you mentioned that, of course, we know that time doesn't heal all wounds, but I'm wondering if you can tell us what does Sure. So that is, that is one of the most, and I call them funeral phrases, uh, which is a little bit of a tongue in cheek way to say it, but that's essentially, we have about in our culture, in modern American culture, at least we have about 10 to 12, maybe 15 funeral phrases, things that go to's when you don't know what else to say, you know, and if you, if you use these phrases, it does not make you bad. It just makes you normal. You know, I've, I've, before Kaylin died, I used these at every funeral I went to because you don't know what else to say. Um, but time heals all wounds is perhaps one of the most um, harmful, I, I would say, because it, it, it tells the person that, um, you know, things will get better with time. In, in other words, you know, just wait, things will get better. Um, and that is that is not that is not the case. You know, if you if you don't if you're not intentional with your time uh, after a loss, things will not get better. You know, it, it, that's. It's, it's an unfortunate thing, but it's a, it's a lie to say that time itself is an active entity that heals. It's not a, a salve for the soul or a balm that will heal your grief magically. It, it simply will not. Time does help. Time does help, but it, it only occurs, it, healing only occurs in concert with intentionality. And so time doesn't heal all wounds. Productive time heals all wounds or heals some wounds would be an even more accurate way of saying it, because to be entirely honest, there are some wounds that, that don't heal. They, they, they recover, um, but they don't, they don't ever quite go away. There, there are things that I saw and experienced with Kaylin, especially in some of the more painful moments where she was in a lot of physical pain um, that I think scarred my, my spirit a little bit, you know, and, and it's not that it, it harms me per se, but it, it stays with me. Um, and I don't think that any amount of intentionality or, or, you know, productive time, what I mean by productive time is, you know, intentionally continuing your life. And that doesn't mean, like in my case, it doesn't necessarily mean dating or remarrying or any of those sorts of things. It simply means getting out of bed and continuing to live and, uh, and you, you living within the purpose 
that God has for your life, irrespective of the pain that you might be feeling at the time. Um, time is we, we act as though it passively heals us. Um, and I just think that that is a misnomer that causes people a lot of a lot of damage in their grief journeys. What helped you the most to recover? So I have got this is one question that I've gotten quite a few times. And I, my answer has actually, I think, changed over the course of three or four years that I've been doing talks and those kinds of things. Um, at first, I would have said. Um, so, well, so in, in the Lazarus Within, I talk about the three sources of healing. And so I, I talk about hope and I talk about time um, and I talk about uh, community. And so those those three things um, are sources of healing. Now, again, time, of course, is not a healing entity by itself. It requires effort. Uh, but I do think that time is a significant factor in, in things in, in healing your spirit. Um, but community is one that wasn't uh, wasn't a profound source of healing for me. Um, unfortunately, I, I had a pretty difficult journey with uh, with loss of, of friends and those kinds of things after Kaylin's passing. And that's something I go into great detail about in The Lazarus Within and interviewed seven, seven other people who had endured a, a loss either similar to mine or somewhat complementary to mine. Um, and the shockingly the the amount of the average friend and family loss of relationship was approximately 60% uh, for all for that sample size of 8 me and those seven people so community wasn't the biggest thing for me either so i would i would say either either one of two things and i kind of usually oscillate between these two one the one that i usually the one that is probably uh was initially the biggest impact was writing even if you don't so i i actually in writing that book I went back through all of her blogs, anything I had ever written. I went through all of the notes that she had left in my Bible. It was an extremely gut-wrenching process at first. You know, reliving all of that was incredibly difficult, uh, and especially putting it all on paper and, you know, very intimate process uh, of writing for me, um, but very cathartic in the end, very emotionally cathartic. And to be able to share her story and to feel to feel good about knowing that her pain and her story is continuing to help others, continuing to help other people's pain uh, and that my pain is helping other people's pain is incredibly fulfilling. And even though that may not have been quote unquote healing, I think it certainly helped. Um, and a little bit further down the road, temporarily after that was Erin, um, my, my current wife, I remarried about five years after Caitlin passed or uh, let's say about four years, actually, sorry. Um, and we, we started dating a little while before that. And she was one of Kaylin's close friends. And she just exhibited a, a transcendent kindness to me. She, she was incredibly gracious. She did not ever, I mean, she, she welcomed conversation about Kaylin. She welcomed me writing, even if you don't, which was a book about, you know, another, another woman, a previous relationship and that she never once balked at that. She always supported that. She always supported my, my healing process. Um, always there was, there was never a single time where she made me feel bad about anything I did or said, uh, throughout my grief journey. And that includes things I should not have said or done. It, grief is, is not always pretty. And she stood there unyieldingly, uh, beneath the weight of all that. Um, and so writing the book, uh, and also just, I mean, truly a, a gift from above and, and finding, finding another spouse, um, is th those two things probably in consortium, probably together, 
are ultimately what God used to, to bring me back from the abyss. And now it's time for a sponsor break. In this last clip, Brian talks about coping, bitterness, and moving on. How do you cope with the life that comes after a significant loss, especially one that um, is significant enough that it truly sends a catapult up through the middle of your existence, you know, and, and things split and nothing looks the same. You know, you feel like a stranger in a strange world. Um, and that is very much what I felt like as well. Um, so I, I did take that trip out West very much. Like you said, I took kind of a, a long two week adventure with a friend and then with my uncle, uh, for the second half of the journey. Um, and that was actually a time where you mentioned the fog lifting, the fog did lift, the, but that was very shortly after Kaylin's passing within two months, two or three months afterward. Um, and so actually I think it was sooner than, I think it was within one month of her passing, um, and so I just got away. I, I kind of, you know, caught my breath. I, I prayed a lot. I spent time outside in nature in these beautiful places. Um, and that was an incredible gift to be able to do that. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful that I was able to. Um, and then I came back and I stayed for another few weeks with my parents. They live on a farm in Western Kentucky where I grew up. And, and that, again, was revitalizing in a way for me because I just convened with the outdoors. I grew up outside and, you know, hunting and farming and fishing and doing all those kinds of things. Um, and so those are the things I did. And I, I found new life in those things after, after such a hard journey. Um, but to be entirely truthful, the avalanche hadn't even hit me yet at that point. You know, the grenade had gone off. Um, and in the, in the book, The Lazarus Within, I use the term recoil. You know, it's that, it's that really peaceful period of time like between when the gun goes off and when the, the gun slams into your shoulder, you know, then the blinding pain comes, you know, it's that, it's that period of false reprieve in between. And that's where I was at. I was in sort of the eye of the storm, if you will. Um, and the avalanche hit around the time that I considered, you know, and started trying to publicly date again, you know, that that's really what sent the snow pummeling down the hillside. You know, that's, that's kind of what, what, uh, perpetuated and, and it's what caused that. Um, and so how I dealt with that, I mean, it was, I became a very bitter person for, um, the better part of a year, possibly a year and a half after that started happening. And again, that's where Aaron's significance comes into play is because she never once became bitter. Uh, she, she, and people said and did very callous things toward her because she was part of my effort to continue living. And, and so she became part of the violation of that dichotomy I was referring to earlier. It was really her presence in my life that helped me overcome that, that bitterness um, because she pointed me toward Christ, you know, and that's, it was ultimately my relationship with, with Jesus that, that led me back to not just normalcy, but, but sanity. You know, I mean, I, I was in a place that I called the the wasteland at that time, you know, and it was just this, this void, you know, I was told that I was bad, you know, that I was a monster, you know, and that I, I believed it, you know, I believed it. And of course that's what Satan wanted me to believe, you know, but it, it was very much a war of the mind. You know, I was, I was a very angry person. You know, I wasn't publicly angry. I didn't say and do things that would show that I was angry or bitter or that I was harboring, you know, these, this, these ill feelings of, of rage and, and discontent and just pain. You know, those things were, were inside me to the brim. You know, they were just um, bubbling over, you know, but I, I never, to my knowledge, showed those things publicly, but I did many, many times privately. And Aaron saw all of those things. 
and she stood her ground. You know, she stood in the gap. She's one of the only people who didn't run away, you know, and because she did, she ultimately helped me find my way back to Christ. And I never, you know, denounced my faith or anything of that regard at all. Uh, but I was angry with him, you know, and he knew it, you know, I mean, he, he knew I was angry with him. I, I said it. And I, I think that's an important point too, that I'm a big advocate of is that we tend to sort of baby God a little bit in the way that we pray and the way that we talk to him. And he is much tougher than we are or than anyone that we know. Uh, he is the toughest and I, he already knows what you're thinking. And so if it helps you to communicate what you're feeling directly to him, I promise you, he can take it. He can handle it. Um, and so I, I let him, I let him know everything I thought, everything I felt. I let it out sometimes screaming, you know, sometimes, you know, crying, sometimes alone, whatever it was, you know, I, I, I let him know exactly what I felt. And he never, just like, just like Aaron, he, he never left my side. You know, he was, he, he didn't always give me an answer because sometimes there wasn't an answer. Right. But he was always there. And ultimately what led me back was simply that God was good and he was kind and he, he never once, uh, held any of that against me, you know, and I just have, I just started thinking, you know, Lord, all the things that I have done to you, how many times have I made you feel the way the people in my life may have made me feel right now? You know, how many times did, did I do that to you by, in my sin or in my, um, in my disregard for your will or your plan for my life? How many times have I made you feel disenfranchised? And I thought about how he's forgiven the unforgivable in me. And it, it broke that bitterness, it broke that callousness, and it softened my heart um, to where I could use the, all the pain that I felt in a productive way to help other people. Um, and so I hold absolutely nothing against anybody, uh, anybody. And I think that is imperative. If you've experienced a loss and you've experienced secondary loss as a result and you're harboring bitterness or you're harboring a grudge, you have to forgive. You have to let that go because the forgiveness sets you free, you know, not, not necessarily the other person. Um, and so I, it's, it, it is truly, um, it's pivotal to be able to don't let your heart harden, um, because that's what, that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants you to feel alone, like it's you against the world. That's what he wants you to feel. Uh, but it's not true and it's never true. You're never alone in your fight. And even if you're physically alone, God is with you. Um, and he experiences the same things that you experience and it's okay to be real with him. He's not, He's not this fairy tale mythic character that we sometimes think about, you know, and you know, the Sunday school image of God. He 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 is actually there with you and he's actually listening, you know, and he and he experiences this with you and he cares. He cares about your plight. Um, and so you should also care about the plight of others. And that includes those who may or who may have said or done things that that hurt you. Um, and the important thing to remember there is that they're grieving too. You know, if there's somebody that is upset enough to say something that harmful to you, it's because they're also in pain and they probably also loved the person that you lost. Um, and this is their response to their grief, just like you're responding to your grief in your own way. Um, and so I would I would definitely encourage you to be to be real and honest and always approach pain with a heart of forgiveness and kindness. Yeah, and I think Rico is totally underlining <laughs> what you just said. That's a big highlight. He agrees. He agrees. <laughs> um, I I want to. I had two thoughts as you were sharing that part, and 
it's just those thought, you know, the Satan will send those fiery darts our way and the toxic thoughts that we can have. If we're not careful, we give way to those. And it's for me anyway, it's like a domino effect. And suddenly I'm like, man, I'm really, I'm really kind of depressed or down or, you know, if I don't take the thoughts captive. And I, I wonder if, if maybe what you thought at some point was, or did you engage with the thought that this isn't fair? And then second to that, why now God, she was so young, you know, 25 years old to die of breast cancer. I, I don't know what the statistics are for that, but, but did you, how did you combat having, having those kind of thoughts? Did you recognize those thoughts and then just say, no, I, you know, did you fight back against those or what was that process like for you? Sure. Yeah. So very much like Kaylin did, it, it required intentionality, you know, because those thoughts were very much a part of my daily life. They were part of my dreams. They were part of every part of my existence at that point. You know, I not only was I angry that my wife had died, as you said, but I was also really angry that my attempt to continue living had been stifled so radically as well. You know, and so those two things combined set a fire inside me that felt unquenchable. You know, it was this just deep-seated anger, you know, and, and rage, which of course anger can be godly, but this was not. You know, this was this was a malicious anger, a desire to get even, a desire to feel um, revenge or to feel, um, vindicated, you know, to, to tell my side of the story, regardless of what anybody else thought or, or said. Um, and of course, I mean, it, it started with, you know, upon her, her diagnosis, you know, I mean, we initially, <clears throat> we, we were just very confident that she was going to be healed. You know, we, we believed, we prayed, we trusted God and we continued to trust God. Um, and when that healing didn't come, um, and not only did it not come, but it her her disease progressed exactly on the timeline that all the statistics, all the medical books, all the doctors told us that it would. You know, she she passed in from diagnosis to death three years and or yeah, three years and three days. Um, and so that the average lifespan for her diagnosis is approximately three years. Um, and so that challenged my faith. You know, that that challenged my belief that God had heard me at all, you know, and I think that that that's an extreme example, but it can be applied to daily life. Right. You know, we, we pray for things, we hope for things, we work for things and we don't always get them, you know, and I think it's it's just really important to remember that God is God and we aren't, you know, we, we aren't God. And Kaylin impacted the kingdom of God profoundly. I mean, profoundly. Her blog was read in almost 60 countries. Um, and she did that, I mean, because she was battling cancer, you know, I mean, I, I do not, I would never have chosen it. I would choose to undo it if I could. Um, but she used the pain that she went through to, to honor his name and to give his name glory. And that's what I've tried to do in, in the pain of grief and in the other, the pain that life throws your way after loss. Um, so I think being intentional in recognizing that we are not going to understand the why. Why is not a good question to ask. Um, in fact, I think it's the very question that Satan wants you to ask when you've endured something really hard, because it's a question that God probably is not going to answer this side of eternity. Um, and you're focusing on the wrong thing. You know, why is not really the question to ask. Instead, it's 
probably what is a better question. You know, God, what do you want me to do now? You know, this, this happened to me and I hate it and I would give anything to change it. And I wish that you would step down from the throne and change it right now, please, you know, just pleading with him to change it. But sometimes he doesn't. And the question in those moments is not why, uh, but what and how and when and and who, who do you want me to reach with this God? And, you know, the other uh, interrogatives, if you will, the, the, uh, the other questions are the ones that, that you need to be asking. Why, why is the first one you're going to want to ask? Um, and I asked it thousands of times every single day and oftentimes in unkind ways because I, I wanted to know. And I was very tired of dealing with what we were dealing with. And, you know, we're human and it just was terrible at times. I mean, most of the time it was terrible. And if you've walked through a cancer diagnosis or any other chronic illness that that progress is progressive, you know that it's just it is a daily torment. You know, the waiting is one of the worst parts You know, for new scans or new diagnoses or new prognoses or whatever it might be. And so I would just encourage those out there who are going through hard things like that to redirect your thoughts from trying so obsessively to understand why this would happen and focusing instead on the other questions. You know, OK, now that it did happen and I can't change it. What do you want me to do? How and when and to whom? You know, who who do you want me to help with this? What do you have for me to tell? You know, maybe five years down the road, I'll be on a podcast. You know, on a on a Tuesday night, and I'll get to talk about this. You know, maybe maybe that's what we could focus on instead of cosmically why something happened. Because I don't know that our minds possess the capacity to answer that question. Mm, such wisdom from such a young man. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I wonder, Brian, as we kind of try to wrap this up, if you could tell Kaylin something, what would you tell her? So I do, I do tell her something. Um, that's that's a, an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that. I'm really glad you thought of that because. So she always she this is I mean if if you knew her this just encapsulates her very well. But she was, you know, five foot four, maybe five foot five at most, but rail thin. I mean, she was just a little bitty thing. And she had just this kind of a sweet little squeaky voice, you know, and just the sweetest personality. She was just small and cute and wonderful. You know, she was just, she was all those things. And and you don't necessarily associate those things with like a rock and roll drummer, but that's what she wanted to be. I mean, that's what she, she loved to play the drums and she didn't really play them. Like she didn't, she wasn't trained or anything like that, and she didn't play them in praise and worship or anything, but she used to talk about, she would say, the first thing I want to do when I get to heaven is I want to play the drums. You know, I want to play the drums in the heavenly chorus. I want to bang on them. You know, I want to, I want my praises to resonate throughout all of heaven. You know, I want to bombard the throne with the sound of the drums, you know, and so to this day, you know, when I hear a certain song. There's a song called God's Great Dance Floor by Chris Tomlin. Um, and that's that's the first song I ever kind of associated with this. Um, but, you know, God's Great Dance Floor brings about this this illustration in my mind of like the throne room, you know, and, and all of God's people that have gone home singing and worshiping day and night. You know, Scripture talks about it is without ceasing. They, pra- they, they praise, they worship God all the time. And I just, it, in that song, I can just... There's a part, of course, where there's drums, and I just, I, I just imagine what it must be like for her 
to finally be able to do that. And she can do it completely free of pain. She can do it completely free of the inhibition that life or that the infirmity that, that her body cast upon her and that this world cast upon her. And so the, the thing that I tell her, you know, every time I hear that song, but also other songs is just beat, beat the drums, you know, enjoy it. This is, this is what, you know, this is why you went through it all. The reward is yours now, you know, and you're, you're free from all of the things that, that held you down in life, the pain, the hurt, the loss, and you used your life in a godly way and bang the drums and enjoy it, you know, just, and I'll, I hope to, to be there uh, whenever God calls me home, I hope to be there to enjoy it with her. Um, and I, I just, uh, you know, and I love and miss her, of course, you know, love is not something that goes away when someone dies. Love is an existential reality. Grief is a form of love. Um, and so it's, you know, I will, I will forever grieve, you know, grief is, grief is without end. It has a beginning, um, but it does not have an end. And I think that that, one, one last thing I'll say about that that I think is critically important is that the five-stage model of grief is, is inaccurate, in my opinion. Um, the research that I've done and the writing that I've done and the experience that I've had personally, grief is far more chaotic than five existential stages. Um, you know, we, we want the five-stage model to be correct. You know, we want to sweep grief into five little boxes, but that's not how it, that's not how it works. You know, grief is amorphous. It's a fluid. It, it, it fills you know, whatever space it's put into, and then it bursts out of it, you know, like there's, there's no way to put it in a box. And so I I grieve her loss to this day and every day, you know, and always will. Um, And so in addition to to telling her to bang the drums, I think I would just tell her that I love her and I look forward to, to seeing her again someday. And what would you tell Aaron? I tell her this almost every day, and it it is a simple, um, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Um, she, she saved my life, you know, she, and and not just, you know, I, maybe not from physical death, but from something far worse, you know, from, from symbolic death, you know, from the loss of meaning in my life. You know, I, I was catapulting, falling through that wasteland, through that tunnel of darkness that I may never have emerged out of if it hadn't been for her kindness and the light that she shed onto my life, you know, and, uh, I, I can't say it any other way other than just, I, I feel incredible gratitude and of course love, but especially gratitude, uh, for what she did, the kindness and selflessness and willingness to take punishment, not only from me, but from other people. I mean, she lost a lot of friends by choosing to be with me. Um, and the life that God has given us out of, out of those difficult beginnings is just remarkable. We have our, our first child on the way in December and, um, you know, that's, that's something that when Caitlin got sick, it's something I, I didn't know. I thought, I thought I'd maybe just lost my opportunity to ever be a, a parent, you know, in, in this life. And I just, Aaron has, has given me in so many ways has given me abundant life and I, I thank you as inadequate. Um, but I, if I told her every day for the rest of my life, it wouldn't be enough, but I would say thank you. I think we would all agree that you have been definitely abundantly, doubly, you know, exponentially blessed in your lifetime. And thank you. I couldn't thank you enough for sharing um, your heart, sharing the lessons that you have learned, sharing this journey. I'm, I'm 
you know, I know it can conjure up those feelings that are, that are difficult or maybe a little bit uncomfortable, but you have so beautifully articulated the, the, the process. And, and I think, you know, just the reality of this entire, um, situation for you in your life. So tell everyone where we can get in touch with you. Primarily, I get most of my contact through Facebook. So Brian C. Taylor, author on Facebook. Um, <clears throat> that's my author page. I also have an Amazon author page. Most people, uh, I don't receive many messages on there. Um, so Facebook is the primary modality. I also have a website, brianctaylor.com, uh, where my blog is and my email address is there, which is bctayl21 at gmail. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and so I do receive, I can receive messages directly through the blog and on Facebook. Those are the two primary ways. Uh, but I also am always responsive to emails. Sometimes it takes me a week or two to get back. Um, but I'm, I always respond. So I'm happy to take email, direct email messages as well. And there you have it, Brain Changer, another encouraging message in the books. Please check Brian out and let him know just how much you enjoyed hearing his story. You can find all the contact details for Brian in the show notes as well. And the merch design for today's episode is Today I Choose to Go Get It. I think you'll like the cool design and maybe it will inspire you to step into your calling. The world is waiting. And until next time, Dios primero y que Dios te bendiga. Chao.